Welcome to the second podcast of the Market Mumblers. I am Frank, and I have Taylor here with me. That's right. How are we doing? I'm, I'm all right. It's May the 4th. That's right. Everyone at work today was like, May the 4th be with you. <laughs> stupid. <laughs> stupid. I bet Disney was back today. What do you mean was back? Packed. Oh, why? Just because of Star Well, I mean, they own Star Wars. I don't exactly. Think. Do they even have, do they have Star Wars themed parks? I don't know. They probably did something for it today, but whatever. Tomorrow's the important day because tomorrow's the race, the derby. Oh, yes. They postponed Cinco de Mayo to Cinco de Seis because the derby's tomorrow. And who said that? I did. Okay. So what happened this week? Uh, We're back on the market mumblers. Alvin is not here this week because he had some other obligations to fill today. Um, So it'll just be Taylor and I today. No worries. We'll keep it entertaining. Um, what happened this week? Um, I mean, a lot happened this week. It was kind of a slow this week. I mean, I don't know about you, but I mean, we had a lot of days where we're just kind of on the flat line, but are you kidding me? I mean, we Thursday had, was nuts and Friday today was pretty crazy in itself well, I mean, too. The beginning of the week was kind of calm, but yeah, yeah. I mean, towards the end of the week, uh, we all started getting excited about the jobs report. Um, Apple earnings, Apple earnings, Tesla, um, Elon Musk went crazy. Well, yeah, well, Tesla stock reacted for a different reason than earnings reports, but, um, I mean, and we were worried about China still too, because I know that U S trade delegation is heading out to, to China. So, um, I feel like a lot of investors are kind of just waiting to see what happens. So, but, um, I mean, just like kind of looking at some of this economic data this week, um, not a lot of impressive numbers from i think the u.s and kind of abroad as well um let's for for instance i mean we missed on our um on our ism number our personal spending came in in line at 0.4 our jobs report uh, which is something we'll talk about a little bit later too uh, came in a little light um, but we did see a tick down in unemployment so i mean our economic data is smooth it's not as good uh, around the world as well but um you know, I mean, some of these numbers that are that we're forecasting are still pretty high, but um, I mean, overall, it was a decent week. We had a really strong gain um, on Friday, um, uh, mainly I think because expectations were just too negative at that point. We were at our 200-day moving average. T- Frank, I know we were talking beforehand. I I didn't really know why we we're sitting down here at the 200-day moving average again. Um, you know, this is the third time we've tested it and held it. Um, I mean, even slightly breaking an intraday, but I mean, we've held it for the third time. So I think that's pretty bullish. We're putting in a pretty good floor here, but it was, it was an interesting week. Any thoughts, uh, from you, Frank? Definitely a crazy week, especially towards the end of it with, uh, I mean, Thursday was nuts because the Dow was down 393 at its low and then closed slightly up, which I mean, that's a huge swing intraday. It's almost a, like a giant U during the day. If you look at the chart, um, definitely crazy week though um it seems like every week now since since february where the market dropped pretty considerably every week has had kind of a interesting moment throughout it all yeah i mean uh it's not like the market we used to have where um you know every week we're just kind of you know seeing there knew the market was going to go up um it's been interesting it's been kind of hard to predict what's going to happen as well in the market um, with so many things going around, we don't know what's going to affect the market. So uh, it's definitely been interesting the Fed, lately. Fed reported this week too. Yeah, well, the Fed. Yeah, they. I mean, they had their their two day meeting. 
Um, uh, you know, they didn't even schedule a conference, so I think most investors knew that they weren't going to be um, increasing interest rates. But I think we all see one come in the next few months from the Fed um, if our data continues. But, um, I mean, we had a decent jobs number today. Did, did you, did you want to go into that? Yeah, uh, yeah, we'll get to, we'll get into it um, here in a second. But that was huge. Like the jobs, sure, that was in, important. But what was really interesting was the unemployment rate dropping to uh, below four. That was interesting, and um, I mean, it's it it, it was kind of. Uh, I think we we're predicting a four point um, expectations for the unemployment, but so we did see a tick down, um, which is very interesting. So you know what. Um, I have it here. I went back to kind of see where the lows, historic lows we've had. Um, so, I mean, it's not new. It's nothing new that we've been down below for. Um, but the last time we've been um, down to, in February of 69, we were at 3.4% unemployment. Um, and then we go all the way back to June of 1953, we're at 2.5% unemployment, which is insanely low. And, and um, I think that's kind of near... Well, 100% employment, just the frictional. Yeah, the, the last time out, we were so. below four was the last time we were four, below four percent was 2000. So, that's not that too long ago. But hitting what 1969 at 3.4%, you said crazy. Um, and we're yeah. getting pretty close to that. But one thing you always have to look at too when you're looking mm-hmm. at unemployment data is not just the normal unemployment data that comes out, but also like the U6 unemployment data and things like that, because um, that plays a role into it also um, because one statistic that came out too that comes out every unemployment is how many people are actually looking for jobs because when they're considered discouraged workers and they're not looking for jobs that takes away from the unemployment rate which helps the unemployment rate go down quicker which doesn't really reflect what the actual unemployment rate is because if you look at the actual unemployment rate of the people not working it's a whole lot higher than just 3.9 percent um not too many people count that though because apparently and that's that's why i don't really like looking at unemployment a lot at the number that's reported the greatest because the what's interesting to me is how many people are actually unemployed but just don't care and that makes a big difference to me because it doesn't really reflect how the actual economy is doing at some points because there's a lot of people still looking for jobs but those aren't reported because they're discouraged yeah, so I mean, just looking at the the data release from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, we saw um, the total number of unemployed persons at 6.3 million, um, which obviously there's still a larger pool of um, people to be pulling from. If you know, we haven't seen that pressure on uh, average average hourly earnings yet. So, um, I mean, I think our labor uh, market's still healthy. I don't know. I don't know if you have any particular views. Yeah, on I think that. so. But one, so the U6, like I was explaining. The U6 unemployment is at 7.8%. Um, so it shows a little bit of a different view as to what the actual unemployment rate is because it, um, you know, the official unemployment that's put out doesn't include discouraged workers and marginally attached workers or part-time purely for economic reason workers. So it does change the outlook a little bit, I think, because having 7.8% of people who are actually trying to look for a job um it's a little bit different, so. Yeah, I mean, um, obviously the the number that we get is not the exact number of, of um, total unemployed people. Um, however, that still means we have a large portion of of uh, of 
employees or workers that we can be pulling from in the future before we start getting major pressure on on uh yeah and one, one thing you so with hourly earnings i'm looking at our first article here from bloomberg um that it says the u.s economy is doing fine if not great and one of the first things it says the job market is doing fine wage gains remain tepid um which are it shows a little bit different point disappointment because um, hourly earnings were weaker than forecast in April while March was revised down. So that's a little bit of an interesting statistic to see with the hourly earnings. Um, factories are also hiring and struggling to fill robust orders, which is pretty interesting also. One interesting th thing too is... Uh, GDP consumer spending slow, but is set to pick up. And the Fed's preferred price gauge hits its target for the first time in a year for PCE inflation um, versus core inflation. So inflation's picking up also, and the Fed is definitely liking that and probably is helping them not raise the uh, interest rate yet as well. Yeah, so the the factory orders, um, you know, month over month for March was was uh, up one point six, and we're expecting one point three. So, um, and then also in the um, the uh, employment summary that we got um, for Jobs Friday, we saw um, a uh, increase in roughly uh, twenty four thousand jobs for manufacturing and about uh, eight thousand in man in uh, machinery. So, um, I mean, I think the economy is strong still and. You were just talking about um, what were you just talking about? The let's see, the GDP um, and also inflation. Inflation's going up and actually hit the Fed's target price oh, yeah. um, for the first time in a year. Yeah, and in terms of uh, inflation data for uh, the European Union, um, obviously uh, an area that we're looking at that's probably a few years behind the United States. We see that GDP uh, year over year came in at two point five percent. Quarter over quarter uh, was 0 .0 or 0 0.4, uh, both in line. Um, and then we saw the unemployment uh, still pretty high. It's actually at 8.5 for the European Union. So um, a lot of... The EU struggling a lot. They are. They are. And uh, like I said, uh, some of the economic data, the EU was still kind of weak. Um, however, we do see some bright spots, uh, especially in uh, France. Um, you know, their manufacturing PMI uh, was actually 53.8 versus 53.4. Um, the Spanish manufacturing PMI came in higher than expected. So we're seeing some kind of uh, upticks in manufacturing um, in some of the areas of the EU. Um, Germany seems to be chugging along as well, but um, might be close to hitting a ceiling over there. A lot, of, a lot of those countries, though, in Europe, too, you have to keep in mind, do have still negative interest rates. Yeah, which so it's pretty interesting. Yeah, so I mean, I think uh, the EU is still doing their bond buying program or their quantitative easing. So uh, they're expected to start to ramp that down soon um, and then start to increase their um, their uh, funds rates or their interest rates over there. So it'll be interesting to see how they do it over there. Um, I mean, obviously, their economies uh, are a lot different than here in the United States as well as their um, governments. So it'll be interesting to see how they how they're able to handle everything. Yeah, and to go back to the. 3.9% because that's such a historic point that we hit this week. I'm looking at a chart right now that shows it's called the threes on Bloomberg. Um, and it shows there has been four periods when the U S jobless rate was less than 4%. Um, and that was in 19 early 1950s, late 1950s, late 1960s, like you said, 1969. And then also in the, in 2000. Um, and of course we now hit it again. So pretty interesting. Um, 
also when you look at this one thing to keep in mind is once we hit this point below four percent shortly after that was followed by a recession um, especially in 2000 so something to keep in mind well i mean unemployment alone isn't uh doesn't you know predict our our chances of recession i mean obviously we're getting we're getting close with full unemployment but we can always see uh, obviously that decline in unemployment and you know in 2000s we hit um three percent on the unemployment in April of 2000, and we didn't, um, according to the Fed, have a defined recession until May of 20, 2001. Correct, um, in, the, in the economy. But one thing was the um, the tech bubble. So not everything in the economy reflects over into the markets and vice versa as well, because there may be a big crash in the markets like the tech bubble that doesn't necessarily show up as an economic recession. Well, of course. I mean, the same thing happened with the housing uh, that was crashes. everywhere. Okay. That, but yeah, that affected the, the economy. That the tech bubble still affected everyone else. That's not like people in just in California are investing in tech no, companies. But but m- it was mainly the markets, not the whole economy, or especially the world. Just like what happened with the housing bubble, because that affected the whole world. All right. So let's get into the Fang now. So definitely some interesting things that happened with the Fang this week. Um, one interesting thing that happened with it, though, the Fang. What is it? The Fang stocks. Is it a noun? The Fang stocks. Okay. Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google. So it came out today saying, or recently, saying that the Fang stocks make up 27% of the Nasdaq composite, um, which is a new all-time high for that, which is pretty interesting because the Nasdaq composite has 3,000 stocks within it, and only five of those make up 20, 27% of the actual return of the index, which to me is very scary. Well, right. I mean... If you look at those stocks, though, I mean, there's always market um, or, you know, companies that dominate the market. Um, You know, if you look at um, a Sears, they dominated retail for a while until Walmart came along. Um, We had, uh, who else? GE. GE, okay. And if you look at GE, GE used to dominate the industrials. So, I mean, it's not like we've... Now Boeing. Well, yeah, Boeing dominates industrials now. Honeywell, um, you know, GE is kind of lagging, so... You know, we've always had these market leaders um, and, you know, yes, they do represent a lot, but these are really disruptive companies that are really impacting the economy. You know, Amazon uh, inflicting a lot of pain on, t- up on top of retailers, um, Google and Facebook really uh, spinning up the uh, advertising industry. So, um, I mean, Frank's right. You know, there is issues with having, um, you know, just as your portfolio, you don't want just one stock in tech. Uh, you know, representing 25% of your portfolio. But um, I mean, it is something to watch out for. I mean, obviously, if these companies um, all of a sudden start running into some trouble, you know, we can really see, um, you know, the indexes brought down and really, you know, those ind- indexes bring dragging down the broader market as well. And also bringing it back up like today, because Apple brought up the majority of the market today and especially tech stocks because Warren Buffett bought 75 million shares and everybody went crazy and it was like, oh, let's buy. I mean, yeah, Apple, I feel like we can just, you know, segue right into the Apple segment. So why don't we jump into the Apple quarter? All right, so Apple reported their uh, second quarter of 2018 earnings um, this week, and it was really impressive. I, I mean, I know we were, we were both sitting there when uh, when those earnings came out, and it was it was pretty impressive. So let's uh, let's just take a look here. So the company reported at uh, two dollars and seventy three cents of earnings uh, beats expectations of two sixty seven. 
They also reported revenues of 61.1 billion versus 60.82 billion expected. Um, they did come in a little bit light for the iPhone sales at 52.2 versus uh, 52.54 expected. Um, so, I mean, it was still a pretty good quarter, and we still take a look at what they announced as well. It's a hundred billion dollar buyback. That's that's incredible. Crazy. And at the time, I think. Uh, don't quote me on this, but I think the largest buyback we had, I think, was from Cisco, at least to what I'm remembering, at 25 billion. So, you know, a hundred hundred billion dollar buyback program really really blows everything else out of the that's water. bigger than most companies yeah that's that's, that's crazy that's insane that's i insane. want a hundred billion dollars just give it to me instead i don't think they would do that that's crazy crazy so i mean definitely definitely a good thing to do with their cash because their cash is just sitting there doing nothing so if they're not going to do anything to it why not give it back to the shareholders yeah, that is a good idea, and and uh, that's one thing that was debated on Capitol Hill as well. So you know, what are these companies going to be doing with their the money they save from the tax cuts and um, buyback stock and yep, and, and give out dividends? And, uh, and that's what they did. <laughs> that's what they did. I mean, that's I don't think that's really what Washington wanted the companies to do. If they wanted to invest, but um, you know, because what? it's right, fine yeah. with me. I will go ahead and take those dividends and those buybacks. And I'll be Thank honest you with you. I'll be honest with you. I'm mainly leaning to the right side on the political spectrum, but. And and so what what what's funny about this is with this tax bracket and tax benefits and everything, most of the benefits actually go to the richest one percent because who are the ones who own most of the stock who are going to be getting the benefits of these buybacks and these dividends are the wealthiest one percenters are the CEOs are the executives who own tons of share or or Warren Buffett who who just bought seventy five million dollar more shares. 75 million 70, shares. 75 million more shares. Equaling, what is it? We calculated it was 12.7 billion or something. Something crazy like that. But it's it's funny because the tax plan was supposed to benefit the middle class, but it's actually benefiting a lot of the, the upper, upper, upper class, which, I mean, again, I'm, I'm more right-leaning and I love this tax, um, tax cut, but it is pretty funny how a lot of the buybacks and dividends that are being put out are helping the top 1% and the people who are investing um, more so than the lower class. Yeah. So, um, I mean, you know, just switching away from politics for a minute. Um, I mean, just looking at uh, some of the products reports from, from Apple. I mean, you know what, before this, Frank, you know, before this uh, earnings report by Apple, we saw a lot of the supply chain companies for Apple really announcing bad guidance and, and, and guiding down and it really, took a toll on Apple's Apple stock. Yeah. So. And so one thing to go along with that is a lot of the analyst downgrades, not downgrades, but a lot of the negative outlook for Apple was because of what their producers and suppliers were reporting, which sure, that's a good indicator, but not always the best indicator because Apple isn't just based off of their suppliers. And one of the greatest things that I, I see in Apple and ha a lot of analysts see is that their services revenues are increasing dramatically. Um, which is huge because that's guaranteed, not guaranteed, but that's consistent cash flows that are coming in, whether they have an iPhone coming out or not, is you're still getting that monthly cash flow from Apple Music, from iCloud, from all these different services that are that they're building and continuing to increase um, and pushing more and more and more. And I think as I, I think, I mean, Tim, Tim Cook, sure, he's not the greatest innovator like Steve Jobs was, but one great thing about Tim Cook is, is he knows how to bring in cash and to benefit the stockholders. 
And as Apple, because I mean, Apple's been public for the longest time. And as they continue and get closer to becoming a more mature company, turning to the services side is huge for them because that's going to continue to be consistent cash flows, which are going to be benefiting the investors rather than trying to innovate every single year. Because realistically, tech companies can't innovate every single year. Right. And I think that's, uh, I think that's kind of across really the technology industry is that, you know, one of the Apple issues, uh, issues with Apple was that they, you know, had the upgrade cycles where they have huge influxes in cash. Um, and then, you know, years where they didn't. So, um, I mean, you know, they weren't, you know, one of the pioneers of the services, um, you know, subscription model. I mean, Microsoft's been doing it for a while, paying for Microsoft office, $10 a month. Um, but, and I you mean, can see, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but you can see Microsoft too. Um, since they're a more mature company now too, their, their growth isn't 14, 20, 30% per year. Like, like Facebook is right now. Um, but since they're a more mature company, their growth is still three, four percent, which is turning more into like a Walmart, but that's because they've moved towards the services industry rather than coming out with the new greatest thing. Because if you look at some of the Microsoft products, they suck. They're terrible. Yeah, but I mean, you look at Apple and they're not, you know, I think Apple's really struggling right now. I mean, yeah, you know, that's great. You can put out your Macs and your your iPhones and yeah, okay, you've peaked out and yeah, your services are growing, but then there's going to be a point where you need to do something new because, you know, I mean, I'm sure everyone was like, oh, let's hop in our, you know, our car, let's drive down for a Sunday stroll to Sears and do some shopping because we're a mature what, company. What new thing has Microsoft come out with recently? Microsoft, uh, have you read their report? Their what Microsoft Cloud was up ninety eight percent. That's not new. They had the cloud. That's a new business iCloud line that's cloud. still growing. Amazon is, has the cloud. Is is uh, their Apple services growing ninety eight percent? Oh no, they're only thirty one percent. They don't just have the cloud. They have 31%. Apple Pay. They have Apple Music. Oh, they so have, yeah, Microsoft has LinkedIn. They have Microsoft Office. They have all their other products, other tablets. So I mean. Uh, Apple's I think Apple's struggling I feel like you know the only reason why struggling the only reason why I would invest they hit all time high that doesn't mean anything that doesn't mean the growth prospects of the company I mean who would really sit here and like you know what I'm really waiting for the next great Apple product because Warren Buffett is we haven't seen anything I don't think he's investing in the company you know he's probably investing in the cash that they have let's be honest exactly that's what the shareholders want okay well that's not gonna last them for the next 50 years We'll see. All right. Okay, but I mean, just looking on. at the, you know, their sales, we see their iPhone sales were up 3%. Their Macs were up 2%. Um, I'm sorry, their iPads were up 2%. Their Macs were down 3%. Uh, but we did see solid revenues uh, increasing um, in, in, in each segment. Um, I'm probably due to the large uh, sticker price for those, those uh, items. But, um, you know, we did see kind of some softness in, um, in, in Europe and other uh, Asia-Pacific regions as well. Um, Asia-Pacific region coming at just 4% growth for revenue and uh, Europe only at 9%. So, um, I mean, I think Apple um, maybe, I mean, we very well could be in just rebuilding years here. Um, but I think moving forward, everyone, you know, Apple's a technology company. You know, we, we all sat around waiting for the next iPhone. I think that, that vibe is kind of wearing off right now. Yeah, I think so too. But one one great thing that I've always seen with Apple is that they get their customers hooked on their products. Like 
I I have talked to people before where they say, oh man, I, I have to fix my iPhone. It's terrible, blah, blah, blah. But I already bought the new one, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> and it's funny because they get hooked on their products and they get reeled back. Apple just reels them back in. Even when they, they break their phone and a- Apple is at fault for breaking their phone in quotes, th- those customers still come back and buy a new iPhone. So speaking of phones and everything, Let's talk about T-Mobile and Sprint because that was another huge news point this week. Um, well, I mean, T- T-Mobile, T-Mobile, and Sprint, um, you know, agreed to merge for it was what twenty six billion, twenty six and a half billion on, um, yeah. And Deutsche Telekom will end up with forty two percent stake, SoftBank with twenty seven percent, and I, this is huge. I I don't know. I really don't know whether it's going to get passed through the DOJ um, because re- currently there's about four big telecoms in the U.S. T-Mobile, Sprint, AT&T, and Verizon. Now there will only be three, um, which of course presents the DOJ with the possibility of um, with antitrust. But the thing with this that I think the DOJ will take a look at is because with T-Mobile and Sprint coming together, they will have the best advantage and the best chance of putting out 5G first, which will put America at um, an advantage compared to all the other different countries who are trying to get faster networks out there first. And I think T-Mobile and Sprint will propose this to the DOJ as a good reason to let the merger go through. Well, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, you know, I agree that the 5G, you know, strategy is interesting, but... I don't think it's going to work for them. You know, they're trying to play to Trump's concerns about about China and us losing this the world stage. Um, I don't think I don't think uh, the DOJ will fall for that. Um, I don't. You know, I just I can't see a place where we've had only just three major carriers. Um, you know, we look at the airlines, and you know, we consolidated to you know f- what four major airlines: American, United, Southwest, and Delta. Um, I mean, I guess smaller and airlines. JetBlue. Yeah, well, JetBlue is a small airline. So, um, I mean, if you really want to include those, but um, you know, I don't, I don't think that they'll they'll be able to merge here. I don't think the deal will go through, and you know, and, and I don't think that the DOJ will fall for that. You know, national security. The Chinese are going to get us through our five G. Yeah. Um, see, this is this is pretty interesting. So the. CEO of T-Mobile, John Ledger. Ledger, Ledger. my God, you cannot say any CEO's he, name right. He, This is a quote from him. He said, we're going to have an impact on America. The T-Mobile boss um, said this, said on a conference call, um, saying that we are going to drag down the rest of the players, kicking and screaming to the prize, which is an American leadership, um, which is kind of interesting. So, We'll see what happens with this. Honestly, Sprint as a carrier compared to other carriers is not that great. So uh, that'll definitely benefit Sprint customers because I know there have been lots and lots of complaints from Sprint customers on the, the service that Sprint provides. Um, so we'll see where that goes too. Okay. Well, uh, I'm not really concerned about Sprint customers at this point. I'm concerned about what the DOJ will do. I mean, the DOJ is holding up AT&T's merger of um time warner too so i mean we can see how petty we're getting right now that's pretty close though i mean they finished the court sessions now now it's yeah but just i mean the decision i mean you know content providers and and uh distributors you know comcast nbc universal um you know cbs 
and now you know AT&T and uh, Time Warner. I don't know. With this, I mean, with this tax plan, it, it it provides companies with a lot of breaks where they can start doing these mergers and acquisitions. And uh, I mean, the M&A area right now is massive, um, and there's a lot of money to be made with the M&A. I don't think we've seen too much M&A this year as compared to last year. We've seen massive That's deals true. announced last year. Um, and you know, you know, the market was a lot more accommodative last year than it is this year. So I think a lot of the deals last year will, will most likely be get done, but I think we'll start to see a slowdown in deals, you know, as, uh, um, you know, it's very possible too, that, that a lot of companies are just waiting to make announcements to see how the DOJ handles, uh, AT&T, um, you know, the AT&T case, but. Um, you know, we've seen a lot of consolidation. We started to see some consolidation in the, the energy sector as well as oil prices start to move up. So it'll be interesting to see where we where we go from here. Speaking of oil, so we'll get to our next article now. Um, this is from Bloomberg, and it says, oil hedge fund manager says $300 oil is not impossible. Um, which I think is, it's impossible. Which is interesting to see. I mean, I, like I said last time, I love oil. Does it say um, when? Uh, hang on, I'm trying to look at it right now. Um, and oil this, this week was pretty close to $70 again today. It was up a lot. Um, but here is a quote from him. He said, so paradoxically, these peak demand fears might bring the largest supply shock ever. He wrote, if oil prices do not rise fast enough, $300 oil in a few years is not impossible. Um, he is a oil focused hedge fund manager at and Durand capital management, LLP, um, he also went against the conventional view that triple digit oil prices will dampen demand growth. So he, and then he wrote again, so no, a hundred dollar oil will not kill the economy. We need a 100, 100 plus dollar oil to encourage enough investments outside the U S. And one interesting thing is the, the U S is getting closer and closer and closer to being the uh, world's largest oil supplier, which is interesting. Yeah, I mean, oil's oil's been interesting. I think I said this on uh, our last podcast is when I first started trading, oil was uh, really tanking, bottomed out at twenty six dollars um, a barrel. So I've always kind of kind of had a negative view on oil um, after losing quite a bit of money. But um, you know, I think oil oil uh, is an interesting idea. Um, you know, we've uh, recently been investing in some oil companies, um, but I don't I don't know about three hundred dollar barrel for oil. It's a long stretch, but I mean, I mean, maybe in like 20 or 30 years. Oh my gosh. The opportunities that are present now would be insane. Yeah. But I mean, Um, just take, hold on a second. We've seen oil prices in what, 110, $120 a barrel. mm -hmm. And we've seen a massive move into electric vehicles. So, I mean, if it does get to $300 a barrel, we're not just going to sit around paying for it. We're going to be start. Everyone's going to start buying their electric vehicles, their Teslas, their, um, their what Chevy Volts. Um, Toyota Priuses, you know, we've already seen China's massively moving towards electric vehicles. Um, you know, I did actually just read an, uh, read an article about uh, EVs or electric vehicles. So, so I mean, yeah, that's definitely one side to consider. But the other side to consider too is ele- uh, uh, just vehicles for consumer standpoints is not ju- the major point of the oil industry that is used. Um, I mean, ships, big trucks. Things like that. Exactly. I mean, so it's still transportation. Yeah. There's Yes. But the bigger, more industrial types of transportation uses the majority of oil than consumers. 
Um, I don't think you're. I don't think that's right. Maybe not the majority, but a <laughs> large part of it. Um, like think about airlines. When when is there going to be a fully electric airline? Airlines not for a very long less time. Less fuel than cars. So per okay. person. Okay, yeah, per person, but. For the long, I guarantee you, for the next decade, at minimum, there's not going to be a fully electric airplane. And well, I mean, especially yeah, at that point, but I mean, the, I bet you the majority of our consumption in oil goes to transportation and cars and trucks. So, I mean, I think, you know, if we even if we do move away, we'll still have ample supply. It's not like we're running on our last few million barrels of oil. No, of course not. But the, the other thing, too, um, that's driving the recent uprise in fuel prices and oil prices is the unrest in the middle east um with iran right now especially in trump with the iran deal which is coming up in the next few weeks um so that's helping drive oil prices up higher as well as um other things that are going on in the middle east but if you look at it the rig count was up 11 from the last week which is up one percent um still 18 percent from the prior year so with the rig count going up that always makes me think of high crush partners because as the rig counts go up, that means more sand is in demand, which means high crush partners is doing well, um, which you will always hear me talk about high crush on this podcast because that is my child. I love that company. Um, they reported earnings, by the way, they beat of course, and they're up. So by now, what else? Yeah, so I just found a, an article here that uh, breaks down uh, exactly what the U.S. uses um, oil for. And uh, roughly 70% of our oil consumption is uh, through transportation. Uh, what, transportation. Kind, what kind, though? Does it break down what kind of transportation? <coughs> because um, that does matter. Yeah, 43% uses uh, is used for gasoline fuel for automobiles and piston engel- engines. Um, 23% is for uh, distillate. Future, or fuel oil for uh, homes, heating oil, diesel fuel, um, and then smaller percentages in the single digits for, um, you know, jet A fuel, petroleum, coke, I don't know what that is, asphalt roads, still gas, raw materials, lubricants, kerosene. Yeah, so, I mean, the so majority is used, used right. by But by a lot consumers. of, so, yeah, a lot of, a lot of it is used by the consumers, and that's going to be the first area that takes over the electric space. But, all those other fields will not be in the near time future. When will your house be fully electric? Not for a long time. When will all the industrial transportations be fully electric? Not for a long time. So there's still a market out there. Um, even well, we don't use oil to run energy. We don't have oil tanks in our backyards. I mean, I mean, we'd have so many oil. ways. Yeah, heating. We don't all use heating oil. We use natural gas. Sure. I mean, you've never lived in the north, so I don't know if how you, do you use. Do you know how we get natural gas? Natural gas is a byproduct of what you do drilling fracking. Ah, yeah. There we go. Yeah. You think I don't know, but I know, I know your your oil ways. <laughs> you Texans okay. get everyone else their oil so we can drive. Got to keep track of the rig count though. Love watching the rig count. Oh, on your Baker Hughes app. Yep. 1,032 rates. Oh, speaking of, uh, you know, yeah, let's just take a look. You know, we didn't see oil move very much on this number. Sorry, I wasn't up to the mic here. Um, but we did get on Wednesday, um, we got the oil inventories. Let me just pull it up real quick because I have them here. So we had the um, the crude oil inventories. We were expecting a build of 
um, 737,000 barrels. We actually got a build of 6.2 million barrels. So it was a, a pretty, lot, it was yeah. a pretty large build, but yeah, we didn't see oil prices budge. I think it's because we're all sitting on edge worrying about what Trump's well, going to do. With oil, the oil was up today though, because of, I think Iran and some other things. But well, yeah, we Iran. Maybe. Which, which, but I'm glad you mentioned that because that is pretty interesting to me. Because even though the numbers were way off the estimates, oil didn't react that much. Like if you saw something that big several months ago, there would be a huge drop in oil prices, but it didn't move that much. So pretty interesting. But um, we'll move on to the next thing. So the Treasury yield curve um, and what happened with it once the Fed decision came out. Um, if you look at the chart that I'm looking at right now, it shows the um, unusual steepening um, of the treasury yield curve from five years to 30 years. Um, and it shot up within minutes from 31 to 33.3. So not so much just the numbers, but the steepening of it in such a short amount of time was pretty interesting to see. Steeping of what, the tenure? No, the spread between treasuries from the five to 30 year. So we've increased the spread. Yes. So that's good. Yes, but I mean, I'm I'm, I'm not talking about that. I'm just looking at the cur the steepness of it. Um, curve steepening is a rare enough occurrence. It's near the flattest levels in more than decades amid bets on continued gradual Fed rate hikes. But it's the manner of the steepening that's striking. Um, this is coming from Bloomberg. The world's biggest bond market experience is so-called bull bull steepening when short shorter term Treasury yields rally to a greater extent that there are long out longer dated counterparts. Indeed, five year yields fell as much as 1.7 basis points and two year yields dropped 1.2 basis points. In contrast, 10 year yields were flat and those on the long bond rose. So pretty interesting traders attributed the most in short term yields to the fed being less hawkish than anticipated after its preferred measure of inflation reached 2% this week. So definitely interesting. Um, cool chart. If you want to, Okay, so that'll wrap up this week. It's a little bit of a shorter week for us since we don't have Alvin here to pretty much tell us what to do. Um, but we'll, we'll <laughs> definitely an interesting week packed with a lot of material um, and a lot of things to di digest. So we'll close it out. And wh wh what do we have to look forward ne to next week? Yeah, I mean, next week we have uh, not as much economic data as, next, uh, as this week, but we do have some uh, PPI and CPI numbers uh, in the middle of the week. And then we also still continue with um, our earnings season heading into next week. It's one of our busiest weeks, probably one of the last busy weeks we have. Um, so next week we have uh, Disney reporting. Um, Marriott. May the fourth be with you. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Disney reporting, Marriott reporting, um, Anheuser-Busch is reporting next week. Um, NVIDIA as well. That'll be very interesting to to see how, um, you know, there's a lot of been a lot of debate around how they're handling their cryptocurrency and every all their chips and crap. Cryptos. What a joke. Uh, yeah, Frank is against cryptos, but absolutely. <laughs> um, so, I mean, next week would be an interesting week. Plus, we get, um, um, you know, I mean, we might hear some more uh, information from, um, you know, the trade talks out in um, China. Um, and then we'll, like we said, we'll continue with our earnings next week as well. So it'll be interesting to week to watch out for. Um, so, I mean, that pretty much wraps it up. Anything yeah, else? But, but yeah, so a lot of data coming out recently or in the, in the near term for future because there's China, which is huge. I mean, we have what, six, seven people over there right now discussing trade issues. Um, also, in the next two weeks, 
Trump's going to come out with his decision on the Iran deal, which Netanyahu recently came out with news that Iran was lying about their nuclear program. Um, so a lot of data coming out that will affect the markets in the next few weeks. Earnings coming to a close. Um, Treasury yields still near 3% for the 10 year. So a lot of things to watch out for. Yeah, a lot of things to watch out for next week. So it'll be interesting to see. Um, we'll check in back uh, next Friday with uh, you know to what happened that week as well. So uh, we'll keep an eye out. So make sure to check us out on Twitter at the Market Mumble for our, all our latest updates on our podcast and what's going on in the markets. Um, we'll see you here next week on Friday. May the fourth be with you.